This is Phantom Power. The interior voice, the interior voice is at least as much imagined as a reflection of external phenomena. And if you have a voice, a voice, and have heard a recording of yourself speaking, you probably know that the auditory perspective between your ears is like nowhere else. Is like nowhere else. Between your ears is like nowhere else. A shifting interior voice is an index of something very different from a stable interior voice. Hey, it's Phantom Power, a show where artists and scholars tell stories about sound. I'm Mac Haygood, and welcome to part three of our three-part series called Voices. This time we're featuring sound study scholar Jonathan Stern. It's springtime in North America, and one of the things that seems to be kind of thawing out is our anti-COVID policies. Uh, I don't know, it it feels like uh, things are opening up again, uh, hopefully for good this time. And as I get back out into the world, uh, one of the things that I'm encountering that I didn't realize how much I missed is a murmur or a hubbub. or what sound designers call a walla. The sound of voice on voice on voice on voice. You can get it at an airport or in a crowded shopping mall, uh, if those still exist. or in a theater when you're waiting for the curtain to rise. But as an academic dork, my favorite walla is the conference walla. It's that sound in the hallways of the conference hotel, in between the sessions and panels, when people are in the hallways meeting each other for the first time or getting to know each other or greeting each other for the first time in a year or animatedly exchanging ideas or gossip. That, that walla is just one of the things that lets me know that I'm at a conference. And it's pretty cool. And I've really missed it. It definitely hasn't been replicated online via Zoom. But conferences are back. And if you happen to be a humanities academic of some sort, and you're finally able to go out to a real live face-to-face conference again, maybe you'll run into Jonathan Stern. He's Professor and James McGill Chair in Culture and Technology at McGill University. 
Jonathan has published numerous influential books and articles on sound studies, media, science and technology studies, disability studies, and cultural studies. And he goes to a lot of conferences. But here's one of the many interesting things about Jonathan. If you run into him at that conference, you might notice something unusual hanging around his neck. I wear this um, device around my neck. It is a portable personal speech amplifier. It's basically a transistor radio with no radio and a microphone. Um, Now, of course, today people walk around with Bluetooth things in their ear all the time, but this is a much less sort of cool modern microphone. You see the headset mic is not like one of these like nice um, concert mics that pop singers use or something. It's uh, it's a sort of clunkier uh, assemblage in the black vinyl simulated leather um, pouch. (laughs) And when people see it, um, the question is, what is that? In part one of this series, we talked about Steve DeBerg's shoulder pad loudspeaker system, which allowed the NFL quarterback to talk over the roar of stadium crowds, despite a paralyzed vocal cord. Well, very similarly, Jonathan Stern uses his device to overcome the walla of crowded indoor spaces. It amplifies my voice. So my voice comes from my chest and my mouth. And I use that for seminars. Um, I use that for um, some meetings and sort of conversations. And then I used to take it to restaurants. But the problem is, if you put anything in front of the speaker, like a menu, you get shrieking feedback. Uh, And Uh. there's no better way to silence a large restaurant than shrieking feedback. As you may have noticed by now, Jonathan doesn't think his personal speech amplifier comes across as the coolest thing in the world. Very quickly, I I gave the device a name, which is the Dorcaphone, which (laughs) implies um, the O-phone part is like, you know, uh, futuristic audio technology of the past, right? It's a very small transistor radio, and it's a Dorcaphone because it's not cool. Uh, It is a prosthesis that marks me as being in need of supplementation, or having something wrong or different about my body, as opposed to, say, my glasses, which are functionally equivalent for my eyes, but are seen as a fashion accessory. But this is Jonathan. His 2003 book, The Audible Past, Cultural Origins of Sound Reproduction, was a watershed event. It didn't just address the fact that audio technology was terribly understudied in the humanities. It also challenged cherished humanistic assumptions about what listening is and what technology allegedly does to our listening abilities. His 2012 book, MP3, The Meaning of a Format, was both a fascinating cultural history and a deep meditation on the purpose of compression technology in capitalism. So when people see Jonathan wearing a piece of sound technology around his neck at a conference, they get ideas. If I'm giving like a small seminar or something, uh, when I'm visiting somewhere and I don't explain what it is, people think that it's some kind of performative commentary on the mediality of the voice because it's (laughs) me giving a talk probably about sound and then I'm using this thing. So, of course, it is a performative commentary on the mediality of the voice, which is, for those who are not professionals in our field, it's simply to say there's no such thing as a voice that's not mediated in some way. way. 
So, let's hear the story of why Jonathan wears the Dorcaphone, what it's taught him about voice, technology, and disability, and how his experience informs his brand new book, Diminished Faculties, A Political Phenomenology of Impairment. Diminished Faculties begins with a fragment of memory that Jonathan retrieved in his sleep about a decade ago. I asked him to read this opening passage through the Dorcaphone. Breathe, Jonathan. Breathe, Jonathan. I can see the lights of the surgical theater arrayed above me. The lights are out of focus. They have halos, like they're doubling out from themselves. I see the blurry outlines of bodies and surgical outfits around me. People are mostly standing still. There are machines making sounds. I hear the doctor's voice imploring me to breathe. I cannot breathe. I can move the muscles in my diaphragm, but no air is coming in or out. I think he walks around toward my head. Breathe, Jonathan. There's a weird throttling sound that comes out of me. Or maybe it goes in. Somebody says to put me back under. Everything fades. What Jonathan suddenly woke up remembering was a moment from a surgery related to his thyroid cancer. When the surgeon awakened him to see if he could breathe on his own. The strangeness of later awakening in bed with a memory that one can't remember having experienced to begin with? Well, that was just one of the disorienting phenomena that he would encounter through cancer. A series of experiences that showed him how the body-mind is something unstable, something beyond one's own control. So, in March of 2009, I was giving a talk at the University of California, San Diego, It was in a seminar room. The room was full and the room was closed and it was kind of stuffy. And as the talk went on, I started to see stars and then I started to feel faint. And so like I grabbed onto the uh, podium and I held on as hard as I could and I like powered through the talk. This was uh, probably something from my MP3 book. And if anybody noticed, they didn't say anything to me. And then we went out to dinner and later that night in my hotel room, again, I started, the room wasn't quite spinning, but I started to see stars again and I was dizzy and lightheaded. And so I called the travel health people for McGill. They said, why don't you go to the hospital, get checked out? So I go to the very, very posh hospital in La Jolla and they do a CT scan on me, some other stuff. They say, you're fine. You can fly home tomorrow. It's no big deal. But It seems that something is compressing your trachea. It took months for the doctors back in Canada to identify the problem, but eventually they discovered a cancerous tumor nearly three inches long on Jonathan's thyroid gland. Thyroid cancer, if you don't know, is quote-unquote the good cancer. Never say that to someone who has thyroid cancer. They hate it. 
fair, because there really was nothing good about it. He had multiple surgeries, followed by radiation, radioactive iodine therapy, oral chemotherapy. They removed his thyroid, but it seems there was a slow creep of cancer into his lungs as well, which he and his doctors have been managing ever since. He's been dealing with this stuff off and on for 12 plus years now. Years of treatments with sometimes really rough side effects. In fact, even some of the treatments for his side effects had side effects. Just one example, Stern is also a musician. In fact, all of the music that we're hearing today in this episode is by Jonathan or one of his bands. But he's had such terrible hypersensitivity in his hands that he's had to wear special gloves in order to play his bass. But one other thing to know is, and and I'm not interested in creating what disability scholars and activists call inspiration porn here, but Jonathan really has approached his cancer as an object of curiosity, reflection, and even sonic art. On his Cancerscapes website, you can find years of blog posts and even his Cancerscapes sound pieces, manipulated field recordings made in the hospital. Now, it is May 2010. I've embarked on 30 treatments of external beam radiation. They're not painful, but the cumulative effect is. I'm told that my voice will again be reduced to a hoarse whisper, but that it will recover. I decided to track its state each day as I enter the hospital for my treatment. The ambiance changes. Sometimes I'm walking. Sometimes I'm standing. That's one of Jonathan's cancerscape pieces, recorded pretty early in his treatment. And I find it totally shocking. Because I think I've known Jonathan for about 10 years now, and I've never heard his voice sound like that. To me, this doesn't sound like Jonathan. It sounds like the voice of a different person. Is this something more like the voice Jonathan had before I knew him? Or is it one of the many voices that he had when he was undergoing the most intensive period of his treatment? So the first surgery, um, they took out the right lobe of my thyroid, but then they couldn't find my right recurrent laryngeal nerve. The recurrent laryngeal nerves control your vocal cords. So uh, most people have two, and um, together they open and close the vocal cords. Jonathan's doctors prioritized saving his voice. He had a second, extremely delicate surgery to remove the other half of his thyroid without damaging his remaining recurrent laryngeal nerve. That surgery was a success, but he still had one paralyzed vocal cord, and what was left of his voice would still have to undergo the assaults of all of his subsequent treatments. I start working with with a speech therapist, and she teaches me how to talk and swallow again. Um, And I was keenly aware the whole time of my voice fluctuating. Like, basically, from the moment I woke up in November of 2009, my voice was no longer a stable thing. It is Tuesday, the 8th of June. I have 13 treatments left, and this is my voice. 
It is Wednesday, the 9th of June. I have 12 treatments left, and this is my voice. It is Thursday, the 10th of June. I have 11 treatments. It was constantly varying. And I mean, this is true for people with quote unquote normal voices as well, uh, in the sense that your, your voice wears out. Uh, you get hoarse from talking or yelling or, you know, screaming at a sporting event or something. Um, but I think for most people, especially because of the cultural weight um, our culture places on voices as an index of self, um, those variations are sort of explained away or ignored or seen as the deviation from my real voice. Uh, whereas what had happened to me is my voice had become variation. The interior voice is at least as much imagined as a reflection of external phenomena. And if you have a voice and have heard a recording of yourself speaking, you probably know that the auditory perspective between your ears is like nowhere else. Now, imagine that that perspective is not available as a stable foundation for self-regard, but changes from day to day and hour to hour. Imagine you are attuned to sound and have grown up in a culture that hears voices as indices. A shifting interior voice is an index of something very different from a stable interior voice. When your voice, when your exterior voice became unstable, became multiple, or at least its multiplicity became super readily apparent, intellectually, I'm sure you knew your interior voice was, was a, something of a construct, but it seems like the actual lived physical experience of, of that, I mean, led to an entire project. So obviously it had an impact on you. That's, uh, that's totally fair to say. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think about how to explain this without psychoanalyzing myself. I mean, that, that passage is instructions as much to me as to the reader, um, because it's something I have to constantly remind myself of. That passage from Diminished Faculties shows Jonathan engaging with phenomenology, something I definitely would not have expected from reading his previous work. To say I wasn't interested in phenomenology would be unfair. It was more like I hate read phenomenology. To put it very simply, phenomenology is the study of how we perceive things and how we engage with the objects of our experience. Traditional phenomenologists did things like sit at a table and, or, or grasp a hammer or listen to the sound of a room. And then they would try to isolate some kinds of 
universal properties about how we perceive and engage with the world. And the thing I didn't like about phenomenology was it was generally white guys walking around in a room or sitting in a chair and then universalizing their own experience. But more recently, we've seen new phenomenologies emerge, ones that try to account for forms of difference. Sarah Ahmed's groundbreaking 2006 work, Queer Phenomenology, explored the lived experience of people who are positioned as sexual and racial minorities or embody other forms of difference. These subjects, Ahmed claims, are differently oriented to phenomena within a world that has not been shaped for them. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Oh, I'm biased against myself, I guess. <laughs> In part two of this series on voices, Stacy Copeland investigated how patriarchy shapes the way that women experience the phenomena of their own voices. Jonathan Stern's Diminished Faculties explores what he calls a political phenomenology of impairment critiquing the ableist assumptions embedded in old-school phenomenology, and asking what disabled bodies can teach us about our perception of the world, starting with the sound of our own voice, which our culture tends to associate with agency or ability itself. The, the way that a person's voice sounds in their head is totally different from the way it sounds in the world. So the first time somebody hears themselves on a recording, on a voicemail, on an answering machine, it's usually shocking or kind of revolting. Like most people don't love how they sound when they hear how they sound outside their heads. And the weird thing about those recordings, even though they're done by machines, in a way, they're much more accurate representations of the voice than one's own hearing oneself speak is. Yeah. Which is utterly bizarre, right? Because we normally right. think our perceptions of ourselves are like the best perceptions and the most accurate. But in fact, at least with the voice, we are the poorest judges of the sound of our own voices. And that's true for everybody. The difference is if you have a stable voice, um, you can sort of forget about that. Whereas if the voice is constantly shifting and shaky and something to which one must attend, uh, then it becomes foregrounded and the sort of instability becomes a way of revealing some of the processes by which subjects are constantly shoring themselves up and maintaining the illusion of their wholeness or unity when in fact... Um, they're shifting and unstable from moment to moment. So I just wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit deeper because I, I think no, no matter how much I intellectually can challenge it in a number of different ways, I, I still tend to think of myself as like there's a little me inside of me who's kind of like uh, driving the car here. And, and I think I associate that me, that self, with, with the sound of my own voice, which, as you point out, is actually not the sound of my voice. It's the sound that I hear resonating through my skull and my body, which is a kind of deeper, more resonant thing than when I listen back to this podcast, I hear. Um, and 
And I, and yet, I mean, I also know that I don't think at the speed of speech or I'd never get anything done. Right. Um, so I, I know intellectually that there's some difference there between my voice and myself, but they seem so intertwined. And I can imagine that if my voice just started sounding really different, uh, every day or throughout the day that that might be disruptive to that sense of self. Yeah. I mean, in extreme cases, that's why vocal effects are, um, so interesting, right? Helium voice is always hilarious for people that don't normally have helium voice, um, because your voice isn't behaving the way it's supposed to. And even the voice in your head sounds different. Um, puberty, right? And voices cracking and things like that. Um, yeah, that's a great example. Are seen as subjects uh, out of control of themselves. Yeah. Right? And you could say the same thing either with auto-tune singing or out-of-tune singing. In both cases, it represents subjects not in full control. Um, and ironically, in both cases, I think, produces a kind of authenticity effect in the music for people that like that kind of singing, whether we're talking about the sort of authenticity drenched uh, indie guy singing alternative rock slightly off key, or we're talking about the hyper pitch shifted R&B singer. I think in both cases, those to the audience signify some kind of feeling or authenticity that's precisely in the moment that the voice isn't in control of itself. Yeah, that's wonderful. It could mean something completely different. I mean, if you don't like the music, then it means something else, right? I mean, you can just go on and on. There are all these sort of vocal effects that are tied up in regimes of listening that are all about attributing subjectivity to the speaker. It's just a particularly striking instance of the way ideology works, right? That this thing, the sound of a person's voice, um, either in the air or through a microphone, becomes a index of all these other things about a person, like whether they're in control of themselves, whether they're believable, whether they're relatable, whether they're likable, uh, whether they're powerful, whether they're weak, whether they should be taken seriously, whether they're smart or dumb, right? And this is before we get into things like accent, language, Uh, usage and subculture and things like that. Nina Eidsheim calls it the acousmatic question. Who is this speaking when um, I hear someone else speaking? Yeah. And it's an unanswerable question because. And I mean, um, and she really pushes that so far as to say that um, voice isn't really something that we have, right? Like voice actually lives in the ear of the perceiver. Yeah, I, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with that. I mean, the the inner ear of self-perception is just another perceiver. Um, it's one that uh, that you or I privilege when we're like listening to the little me's in our heads, to use your term. <laughs> but uh, it's certainly not more important than all the other subjects that hear our voices in a given day, week, year, or lifetime. So, just to recap a bit here, Jonathan's own instability of voice underscored that all of our voices are always changing, which is something that we ignore in order to let the voice stand in for a unified and agentive self. 
The role the voice plays in Western culture is overdetermined by our liberal, individualist, ableist conception of subjectivity. We like to think that we know exactly who we are, that we are unique, yet whole and self-possessed, secure in our own self-determination. We don't want to dwell on the fact that we have no idea how to beat our own heart. We don't even know how to breathe. We're all just a contingency away from those things going awry. And perhaps because of that suppressed knowledge, we think of those who are not in control of their body, mind, or voice as less than. And almost perversely, this ableist ideology often comes wrapped in the rhetoric of voice, which supplies some of our most touchy-feely, democratic-sounding platitudes. We speak of finding one's voice, amplifying voices, giving voice to the voiceless, hearing a diversity of voices, voices power, voices agency. Well, in diminished faculties, Stern challenges this kind of talk, this kind of conception of self, head on. I will name the set of assertions about the voice as the ideology of vocal ability. It includes the following propositions, any one of which can figure and enact the voice as a figure of agency in which together construct an ableist conception of voice. One, there is such a thing as the voice, which is a universal faculty of human beings. It is one aspect that defines them. Two, to understand the voice is to understand a fundamental aspect of subjectivity. Three, the voice is a natural expression of an inner subjective self. As breath moves out into the world in the form of sound, so does agency. Therefore, having a voice is preferable to not having a voice. This kind of ableist thinking is not only enacted in the ways we listen to others, it can even get built into the technologies that are intended to serve as vocal prostheses. Too often, these technologies ignore aesthetics or expressiveness in ways that reflect disabled people's stigmatized and marginalized status, even as they are supposed to ameliorate it. Case in point, Jonathan's Dorcaphone. Jonathan's speech therapist introduced him to the personal speech amplifier while helping him to relearn speaking, swallowing, and breathing during his recovery. Jonathan, who has long been interested in the interplay between disability and communication technology, immediately noticed a weird combination of high price and total lack of concern for aesthetics that you'd never find in a mainstream consumer device. The pleather neck pouch the awkward-looking headset microphone, not only did it not look worth $300, it also carried the air of stigma found in so many assistive technologies. I think actually a lot about design and disability. Um, Graham Pullen's Design Meets Disability, which came out in 2009, really influenced my thinking 
on this topic. Mm. And that is that most prostheses that are designed for people with disabilities are presented as functional. Yeah. And so the aesthetic side of it is not really considered. You know, compare that with something like, this is the most cliched example ever in sound studies, but an iPhone where even the packaging, like the opening of the package is considered an aesthetic experience. And Pullen compares this with, for instance, storage containers for um, hearing aids, where the container is very not exciting. Like you probably would get a more exciting container with a nice pair of earrings or cufflinks or something like that. Um, the container is just for the user, right? Like nobody sees that, um, but that shapes your own relationship to the object as you put them on and take them off. Uh, and so that's one of Pullen's big points about design and disability is not just about other people's view of it, but the designer's view of the user, right? And this de-aestheticizing of uh, disability also suggests that uh, prostheses or compensations for disability are primarily about function and function defined in normate terms. For me, it's a sort of, Dorcaphone is an ironic name. It is a, uh, you could say it's uh, my tiny gesture of critical design around the device. And I've experimented a little bit with alternatives so far. I haven't really found anything that uh, is super promising for me, but um, maybe one day I'll graduate to a Kulo phone or something. I don't know. I think this also relates to a critique that you bring up um, about expressiveness and the entire idea that the voice is expressive. And I, I loved, um, you, you cited Graham Pullen and Andrew Cook's claim that um, a lack of variation in tone of voice can actually never be neutral. Um, that mm -hmm. because we, we, th we think that vocal impairment indexes some kind of emotional impairment or like a flat affect through the voice. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Augmentative and assistive uh, communication technologies for speech have traditionally focused on just audibility and legibility. In other words, the lexical meaning of the words and not any kind of pitch variation. The universe can spontaneously create itself out of nothing. Moreover, we can calculate the probabilities that the universe is created in different states. And the result is that on the part of hearers, there's often an attribution of flat effect or not as much of a subject there uh, to listeners or by listeners to speakers. I mean, this is a bigger problem with disability. My favorite example of this is cerebral palsy, where people will... Um, assume that a person with cerebral palsy also has some kind of intellectual impairment, which is not often the case. But because the person doesn't move um, like a person without cerebral palsy and because it affects the sound of a person's speech, there's this assumption that there's an impaired subject inside or there's, a, there's an intellectual impairment to go with the physical impairment. So voice is used this way as an index of interiority. It expresses the, the variation in pitch and volume is heard to express 
um, the inner self of the speaker. At the start of this show, Jonathan Stern mentioned the mediality of the voice, that there is no such thing as an unmediated voice. Coming to the end of this series, Voices, I hope this insight has become a little more viscerally apparent. Voices are always mediated by the lungs, by the larynx, lips, tongue, and teeth, by the air, by the headphones you're listening to me on now. And voices are always mediated by our ideologies, by the very belief that there is some unitary thing called the voice itself. Because in reality, every voice is multitudinous. Its location is impossible to identify. It is interior and exterior, in our ears and all in our head, in the vocalist and in the perceiver. The question of to whom a voice belongs is deceptively simple. Common sense tells us it belongs to the speaker, but the more you attend to it, the more you hear an infinite regress, the walla of the world. That's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Huge thanks to Jonathan Stern for being on the show. We barely scratched the surface of his new book, really, um, and it's out now on Duke University Press. Link in the show notes. Go get yourself a copy. Today's show was written and edited by me, Mac Haygood, with major editing assistance from Ravi Krishnaswamy. We heard music by Jonathan Stern, Volt, and Buddha Curtain. All Jonathan Stern projects in today's show. Links in the show notes. Phantom Power's production team includes Craig Ely, Ravi Krishnaswamy, and Amy Sherseth. And our Miami University Humanities Center research apprentice is Jason Megacy, who has been absolutely killing it with the transcripts. We are almost totally caught up with our transcriptions. You can see those transcripts and links to some of the things we talked about and heard today at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. And please tell a friend about us. Take care and see you next time.